How does one go from fleeing a civil war to becoming special assistant to the President of the United States? What do a wedding, an oxygen tank, and a self-starter mindset have in common? The Honorable Dr. Raj Punjabi, former special assistant to the President and senior director of Global Health Security at the National Security Council, answers these questions and more. I'm your host, Hadid Ali. Welcome to Driving Impact. Driving Impact, an exclusive insight into the personal backgrounds and careers of trailblazers on the front lines of policy. Good morning, Dr. Punjabi. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Hadil. Nice to be here with you. How are you doing today? I'm great. I have to tell you that I am so incredibly excited for our conversation today. I've been looking forward to it for for months, um, and your story is just so incredibly moving. So thank you for taking the time to share that with us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. So Raj, tell me, what did 10-year-old Raj Punjabi want to be when he grew up? On the World Cup uh, as a soccer star, <laughs> oh, or in the wow. World Cup as a soccer star, which is now my 11-year-old's dream, <laughs> uh, which he's, he's selected himself. But I was actually in, uh, had just come here to the United States after fleeing civil war in, in Liberia, where I'd grown up. And that was my 10-year-old dream. But by the time I was 11 and 12, I had actually given up on soccer and <laughs> Basketball became my thing, so I very much still sports, uh, but oh, still it up. sports. Yeah, I was the kind of kid that had enough Michael Jordan posters on the wall that you could barely see much of the paint. Oh, wow. um, so that that was the kind of hope I had, but yeah. it was too short and too unathletic overall. But I, I like to say the science and math saved me, and yeah, uh, ended up going into medicine. You know what's uh, funny, Raj? I was actually in Qatar where the World Cup uh, happened um, just this this past year in, in December. Uh, my parents lived there, so I got to go and uh, and be there. My dad went to quite a few games as well, hmm. um, so that was that Incredible. was really cool. So you said it changed pretty quickly, and you were pretty good at science and math. Um, was there any influence from your family, or did they push you towards the sciences, or were you just really good at well, it? Well, I, I think there was some influence yeah. from my family. My mother was a lab technician mm-hmm. in India before mm-hmm. she met my father in the 70s and got yeah. married to him and then moved they mm-hmm. moved to West Africa and she was a math teacher mm-hmm. in West Africa yeah. uh, with part of her time she'd tutor kids in the afternoon and mm-hmm. I'd be sitting at the dining table and my mother uh, is very loving and also very strict <laughs> especially at that time and I know when she came here to this country to the US because we'd fleed civil war mm-hmm. we had lost so much and she wanted to continue to pursue her dream mm-hmm. as a lab scientist yeah. but uh, couldn't afford both that and making sure we had all our needs met mm-hmm. and so i do think that is a part of it mm-hmm. but my parents have also been you know they one works in a clothing shop the other mm-hmm. now is a photographer they've they're both entrepreneurs and I think in like most entrepreneurial families, they prize creativity yeah. and, and self-direction. Mm-hmm. And so my parents have been very open about yeah. what path I choose. But but certainly I think from a childhood, I admired scientists mm-hmm. because my mother was very much one. Yeah, absolutely. So I know, Raj, you've mentioned a little bit uh, your story here, but could you walk us through, you know, we... S- and when you read your story, we see Mumbai, there is Liberia, and then North Carolina. What was that journey like? 
Well, my it really starts with my grandparents. Mm. They lived over 75 years mm. ago in an area now called Sindh, mm. and was then called Sindh as mm. well. Sindh yeah. is now a province in what's now Pakistan, right. but at the time was all part of India. Mm-hmm. And about 100 years of British colonial rule mm. Uh, led up to the partition of India at that time. And my grandparents on both sides, my Mm -hmm. mother and my father's side, were Hindus, Mm -hmm. which were about 1% of Mm -hmm. the population in the largely Muslim and some Sikh Mm -hmm. uh, community in Sindh. When partition happened in 1947, my my grandparents had to flee. Mm -hmm. Uh, They fled on a boat to Mumbai. Mm -hmm. They became essentially refugees. And because our people were actually living in a part of the subcontinent that had been considered an area where Muslim Sikhs and Hindus Mm. were quite tolerant, Mm. very multicultural, Mm. in fact. That was up until colonialism damaged so much of that multiculturalism. Uh, There was an assumption that our people wouldn't need a land Mm. in India. In fact, our people were not given any homeland. Uh, Punjabis uh, were given homeland Mm. in India. Uh, Others were given those who had to flee from what became Pakistan. But our people were not Sindhis, Hindu Sindhis. And, but what we did have was connections to many other parts of the world. Mm. And my grandparents and my father and his brother and uh, two brothers were in fact part of this network of men largely Mm. during the time of colonialism who had been uh, in some ways leveraged by the British to be uh, merchants, to be Mm. part of the administrative staff Mm. across the British Empire. Mm. So it stretched from, you know, places in the Caribbean Mm. all the way to the Far East, Mm. but included places like West Africa. So a generation after my Mm. grandparents had sort of started from scratch, Mm. their kids, my father, uh, his brother, his two younger brothers, mm-hmm. started to seek employment elsewhere, mm-hmm. outside, mm-hmm. where there was connection. Yeah. And so my dad's younger brother had found a job in Liberia, mm-hmm. in West Africa. It's where my father moved mm-hmm. and se- in the 1970s. And several years later, he would meet my mother, mm-hmm. and then they would both uh, move to Liberia together. And I was born there mm-hmm. in Liberia, in mm-hmm. West Africa, mm-hmm. lived a pretty normal childhood. Mm. I mean, one that any child would dream of. Mm. But my my father has a saying he learned from a West African novel, Mm. no condition is permanent. Mm. You can't take the ones you have for granted. And the ones that where you suffer, maybe things that could transform in the future. Well, when I was eight years old, on Christmas Eve in 1989, civil war erupted in Liberia. And that sent my family Mm. and thousands of others into a crisis. Mm. And afterwards, um, that's where you find your family finds um, themselves in North Carolina. Yeah, our journey from Liberia to North Carolina really had to do with the Civil War. Within a few months of Christmas Eve Mm. 1989, so by the spring of 1990, Mm. rebels had surrounded our Mm. hometown, Monrovia. Mm. And my parents' shop was shut down, mm-hmm. our school closed. Mm-hmm. My father was involved in trying to help evacuate people mm-hmm. all of a sudden. My mother came knocking mm-hmm. one morning. I remember her saying, Raj, pack your things, mm-hmm. we have to go. And my father drove us to this 
airfield in the middle of town. The, the international airport had just been attacked mm -hmm. and overtaken by the rebel army. So there was no way to flee mm -hmm. through normal commercial flights. And so my father drove us to the middle of town in a van and my mother, sister, and I were stuffed into the cargo compartment of a, mm -hmm. of a military rescue plane. We were, that was a bench there. Our luggage was mm -hmm. right in front of us where the mm -hmm. luggage compartment was with a net thrown over it. It was hot. It was mm -hmm. sweaty. And we were sweaty. Um, my heart was racing. And I remember just looking out the window. Mm -hmm. uh, my sister and I had our faces pressed against yeah. the window to take one last look at my father. And we took off. He stayed behind mm -hmm. to help evacuate other people in the daytime. Mm -hmm. At night, he would be sleeping on the floor of his mm -hmm. apartment with mm -hmm. his friends, sleeping on the floor because bullets would whiz by mm -hmm. the windows and he was, wanted to avoid getting hit. Yeah. So it was a very difficult time for him, difficult time for my mother mm -hmm. and my sister and me. We ended up becoming refugees in Sierra Leone for several weeks. Mm -hmm and then were resettled in North Carolina. Um, one of my family's friends, a host family, took us in. Mm -hmm. I remember my mother staying up at night you know, when she put us to bed. She'd go into the living room and pray for my father. And uh, I remember being a nine-year-old, and at one point we lost touch with him. Mm -hmm. And so she started a 21-day fast, and she would pray at night for his safety. And on the 21st day of that fast, she got a call from Sierra Leone. Mm. It was my father, and he had escaped that morning. He had, in fact, taken his friend to escape, mm -hmm. and in a split-second decision, had decided to jump on the plane as well. Well, that, that plane ended up becoming the last plane that would leave Liberia for wow. during that time. And I still remember being here in the United States, mm -hmm. and as a nine-year-old, my, my second son is now nine, and I had a body about as little as he has. Mm -hmm. And I still remember my dad being reunited with him, mm -hmm. knocking at the door, picking my little body up and wrapping his arms around me. So that, that you know, we went on to, uh, in North Carolina to, to try to make a life. Mm -hmm. But that moment of seeing my parents struggle through conditions that no one would ever wish for mm -hmm. for anybody's family, I think had a big impact on me as a child here and gave me a sense of what resilience looked like, what struggle looked like. And then we had to rebuild our lives here mm -hmm. as, as immigrants. I was exactly thinking that, Raj, a story of hardship and struggle, but also a story of, of resilience that makes an impact on who you are, but also the career choices that you probably um, made afterwards. You mentioned a host family in North Carolina. Are you guys still in touch? We are, yeah. My mother yeah. actually still works with uh, one of the family members oh, wow. that took us in yeah. uh, in High Point, North Carolina. Yeah. That family helped us in many ways, as, as a whole community in High Point yeah. did. There were, that host family put us up in their two-bedroom apartment. Yeah. The seven of us stayed there at the time, my, my four f family members and, and their three at the time. Uh, we eventually moved out. Yeah. Uh, they helped us and my parents get into mm. clothing uh, sales. Mm. Again, that entrepreneur network yeah. that I mentioned earlier mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. Cindy's around yeah. the world, they're Cindy. Right. And entrepreneurism, you know, some people say it comes naturally to some people. I think it it's born out of creativity, yeah. sometimes survival. And so my mother still works in that store, New York Styles, although <laughs> it's in High Point, North Carolina. <laughs> my father had a store of the same name. They're all part of the same company. Mm that he opened up in Winston-Salem. Mm -hmm. So I grew up, 
my parents couldn't afford childcare because of the circumstances mm-hmm. we, the conditions we came under. But but that actually exposed me to entrepreneurship because mm-hmm. I'd spend the weekends and holidays with my father yeah. selling sneakers and jeans and suits. <laughs> yeah. uh, ironically, uh, you know, at that time RJR's had a, a headquarters there, mm-hmm. so we would also be selling suits to them yeah. and also churchgoers. Uh, ironically, because I ended up going into public health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was my childhood, and uh, that mixed with a little bit of hip hop. Uh, yeah. uh, the my dad was selling. S- jeans and sneakers largely to customers who were into hip hop. And so he had to play his jingles uh, in between Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg's greatest hits, which, you know, gave me a little bit of a Creativity, uh, creativity, yeah, yeah. yeah but yeah. not only hip hop. Were you maybe competing in some form of dance? I've heard. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. Before I became Punjabi MD, I used to dance as uh, to Punjabi MC. No longer. Uh, it sometimes it depends how you, you depends. if you're watching or not. That's. Uh, I actually the first time I came to Washington D.C. was as a college student. Mm-hmm. I was a finishing my freshman year, and uh, the woman who would end up becoming my wife, Amisha Raja, and I had a chance to participate in a dance competition. Oh, wow. Oh, so she's a dancer, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, well, wow. that's actually oh. mainly part of why I became one. But, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Is to You're trying to exactly impress her? impress her. <laughs> I have not quite impressed her ever with my <laughs> dance moves, but I did end up participating in the um, daughter, the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall mm. uh, on right on 17th Street oh. is where they were hosting oh, the Bhangra wow. blowout competition, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And oh, wow. uh, we thought our, so much of ourselves that the UNC, University of North Carolina, mm-hmm. where I went to college, Bhangra team was called Bhangra Elite. It's still called <laughs> Bhangra Elite today, even if they're, I can't speak for today's dancers. I yeah. certainly was not an elite dancer. <laughs> But that is it was a big Very part cool. of my college, and I think yeah. you, you know we were talking earlier about yeah. third culture kids. Yeah. The idea, uh, maybe you could say it, yeah. it, it describe I it mean, again, but it kind of felt like a fit, it felt mm, apt. But go yeah. ahead and explain it because I, I think it kind of explains why I was into dancing. As yeah, well. I mean, Roger, I was just thinking about your your story and a little bit about mine and this idea of of home, right? And sometimes growing up in a certain culture, being having parents from a different culture um, and then living now in a third culture, you know, what does it mean kind of navigating uh, these? We've had different stories, but I think also similar in in some ways. You know, I was mentioning to you, my parents are Egyptian. I grew up most of my life outside of the U.S., born in the U.S., now living in the U.S. and kind of thinking about what does it mean to be, you know, American, having had this multicultural uh, background and are we leveraging and appreciating uh, the diversity of those backgrounds when we're thinking about uh, careers in international affairs or or national security. So always thought of, you know, given your story, when someone asks, you know, where are you from? Is it easy to, to say or do you tell them sometimes the story? I'm like, oh, I'm just going to tell you I'm Egyptian-American. I don't want to make it very complicated. <laughs> but you kind of wish, you know, to, to expand a little bit more on the, the complexity, you know, of, of, of our stories. Yeah. Well, you and I and probably many others, third culture kids, I think that is... A great way to, to and now you have this new term that you can people. use moving forward. Then you need to credit me. Yes, for it. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, Raj, I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the work uh, that you've done, and starting with this TED talk that you did in, in 2017 uh, that was called "No One Should Die Because They Live Too Far from a Doctor." First, what was it like doing a TED talk? Were you were you stressed oh my before? Gosh, it's it? one of the most nerve wracking really? things I've ever done. Yeah, wow. it was. It was fun, too, and transformative in so many ways. Mm. You know, humans are, by history, natural storytellers, right? Um, 
a friend of mine, Chris Anderson, who mm. leads TED, mm. wrote a book called How to Give a TED Talk. Mm. And he, in his opening, speaks about the four R's of that we have writing, yeah. we have reading, we have arithmetic. Those three R's, yeah. obviously, they may start with different letters, mm -hmm. but, but have similar sound as an R, are literacies we take yeah. as commonplace. They're, they're things that we ensure our kids strive mm -hmm. for. Rhetorical literacy, yeah. the fourth R, is something Chris and the whole TED community, yeah. I think, uh, it's why I think their platform's so popular, yeah. the idea of helping anyone from children to yeah. uh, grandparents have a chance to tell a story. Yeah. So for me, being a physician, you're always listening to stories yeah. of patients. Personal it was, stories, it's right. one of the reasons I went into medicine, mm. or at least have have kept connected to it all these years. That's one of the most gratifying parts is to listen to someone often in their most vulnerable moments. Yeah. And the chance to give a TED Talk, to tell a story, mm. was important. Having a chance to tell it about the more than a billion people who live out of mm. reach of care mm. is around the world is something that was a privilege. And then, so that's why the talk was titled, No One Should Live mm. Too Far, No One Should Die Because They Live Too Far From a Doctor. Because I actually have seen mm. in my own career too many people die yeah. because they live too far from healthcare. And, uh, and, and that's because I, I ended up going back to Liberia when I was a 24-year-old medical mm. and public health student in 2005 and, and saw a country that had been you know, after so many years of civil war, had been left with 51 doctors mm -hmm. for a country of 4 million people. Uh, those are big numbers. If, mm -hmm. if to try to relate to them a little bit, I often say it'd be like Washington, D.C. having mm -hmm. about 8 to 10 doctors. Mm -hmm. Imagine the whole city wow. of our nation's capital mm -hmm. having only 8 to 10 mm -hmm. doctors to care for all the people in this metropolis. Mm -hmm it'd be impossible. In Liberia, things were even harder because if you lived where those doctors were, almost exclusively in the city I grew up in, mm. Monrovia, you might stand a chance. Mm. But if you lived in rural areas where no doctors existed virtually, you'd often die from conditions mm. that no one should die from in the 21st century. Complications of childbirth, mm. a pneumonia uh, when you were a child. Malaria, which mm. was, uh, you know, about half the kids mm -hmm. get infected. Uh, half the clinic visits were for malaria. I had malaria as a child there, mm. and it, it still infects so many people around the world. So, of course, to stop those deaths, we have to bring care to people, no. not wait for people to come to care. And I found that community residents, mm. people without a medical degree, no. people without a nursing degree, mm -hmm. often without a high school degree, mm could be an important part of extending the reach of doctors right. and nurses to places that otherwise wouldn't reach. And so that's what that TED Talk's yeah. about. Uh, it's, it's a gloomy title, <laughs> or at least a morally focused one. No one should die in the 21st century from, because they live too far, too far. from healthcare. Yeah. No patient should be out of reach. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, um, yeah, ended up being part of the reason we, uh, myself and others who had mm -hmm. returned from the Civil War, my wife, classmates in public health and medicine mm -hmm. here got together to start a nonprofit organization mm -hmm. called Last Mile Health mm -hmm. with the goal of saving lives in the world's most remote communities in 2007. And Last Mile Health, how did you first pick the name? I mean, I understand what it, you know, what it's referring right. to, but did you pick it? Was it your wife? You know, the original name yeah. actually wasn't Last uh. Mile Health. The original name was a, in a local dialect mm. and uh, Tiatine Health. 
Mm-hmm. And Tiatain is spoken in a dialect in a forest community, a community uh, that has existed in, in the rainforests of Liberia, towns and villages and communities. The, that local word dialect only spoken by 40,000 people. Mm. But it, the, the essence of the word Tiatain yeah. is justice. And that fueled the early values mm-hmm. of the organization. Yeah. But we started, the reason we call it Last Mile Health and ended up calling it that is because we wanted to draw focus to the people around the world who live out of reach mm. of healthcare right. because they live in rural remote areas where doctors and health workers may not reach. reach those areas. So that ended up being a big mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm. Of, of the organization. Yeah. And you know, the word Last Mile has been used in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the telecom industry uses yeah. it when you think about right. building last mile cell phone yeah. communications or last mile electricity or power. Uh, in many ways, we do think about it in the physical sense, but mm-hmm. a lot of these people are out of reach also because they're facing mm-hmm. poverty and they're facing yeah. inequities in the way the health systems are built. Yeah. Your focus was on the healthcare system, like you said, Raj, but it could be applicable to so many other systems um, as well. So when you started Last Mile Health, you had to raise some money. Did you raise some money during your wedding? Is that true? It's true. We we <laughs> uh, it comes back to that that entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial right? spirit, yeah. uh, and, and maybe some naivety as well. <laughs> we thought that my so you know the reason we started Last Mile Health wasn't one of these you know an idea got popped in our mind mm. and then we went to Africa, right? Yeah. I grew up there, I was seeing patients mm. in a bombed out hospital. In fact, half of the roof was mm. still off of parts of the hospital mm. in southeastern Liberia. It's about mm. a 12 hour drive from Monrovia near the border with Cote d'Ivoire in the rainforest. And the government of Liberia had just introduced testing for HIV. Mm. I had been seeing patients with HIV who then were dying within weeks or days sometimes because they were out of reach of treatment. Why were they out of reach of treatment? Right. Because you had to be a physician to prescribe mm. the medicine. Where were the physicians? The physicians were 12 hours away in the capital. Yeah. It wasn't a surprise that even in the year 2007, even after HIV treatment had been available to many people around mm. the world and was being decentralized, Liberia because of the lack of health workers mm-hmm. in rural areas, had not been able to decentralize it. Mm-hmm. So in February 2007, we worked with the government. I was actually still volunteering with mm-hmm. the government as a clinician in that hospital. Took an F-150 truck and brought pickup full of antiretroviral medicines. Mm-hmm. And the next day, February 2nd, 2007, we launched a clinic in the hospital. We mm-hmm. didn't have space for it. Mm-hmm. So we actually ended up, we're, we're given the bathroom, actually the bathroom and closet. Mm-hmm. And in that washroom is where we set up a desk mm-hmm. and started seeing patients and started enrolling them on HIV treatment. And mm-hmm. although we lost still too many, I'm proud that some of them not only are still living, but became part of what would become Last Mile Health. Right. But the challenge, of course, was that many of these people were coming from rural, remote mm-hmm. communities, mm-hmm. still hours away. Yeah. How do we get healthcare to those people? How do we test them earlier? How do we treat them and keep them on treatment? How do we deal with not just their medication needs, but their social needs? Many were suffering from malnutrition mm-hmm. or didn't have a job or were spending the equivalent of half a year's of income just to get one way to the hospital. 
Yeah. And these but. issues, Rajas, you know, you've obviously worked on them with Last Mile Health across the African continent, but you've also worked on these same issues in the U.S., working on yeah. in, in the in rural Alaska, in North Carolina, right. these issues of, again, lack of access, right? Right. right. Yeah. yeah, so so coming back to, in fact, it was the work in Alaska yeah. that I had, it's my first job in public health was working on the Yukon mm. River Delta in 2001 with the Yukon Kuskokwim Health Corporation. Mm. So here we were on the Yukon River Delta trying to get healthcare to thousands, tens of thousands of Alaska natives mm -hmm. who had designed a system over 50 years of hiring, training, and equipping mm -hmm. local people, yeah. often women, but men mm -hmm. as well, as so-called community health aides. Yeah. Again, trained for 16 to 32 weeks. Yeah. You may just have a 10th grade education, mm -hmm. but then you become an extended part of the medical yeah. team. And so supervised by nurses, you know, remotely supported at that time with telemedicine mm -hmm. by doctors. And they had figured out over 50 years to provide dental care to their neighbors, to provide vaccines, mm -hmm. to provide primary health care. We were, and, and that model in my mind had the idea of answering the call to serve your neighbors mm -hmm. being the basic principle was something that I think really influenced us and uh, the work of organizations like Partners in Health who had, mm -hmm. who had done work to roll out HIV treatment, engaging community health workers influenced us. And between February and May we, of, of June of 2007, when we got married, my wife and I, because you brought up the wedding and Last Mile Health, <laughs> we had enrolled about 60 patients mm -hmm. in HIV treatment. Mm -hmm. It was the first HIV clinic site in a rural part of the country in, a, in the public sector. But we had no way to provide support to them to bring their medications. We could enroll them in the hospital and go back hours or days away into their remote rural communities. So to solve for that, we wanted to hire, train, and equip people from those communities to be part of the medical team mm -hmm. since the health worker shortage, which still plagues many people mm -hmm. around the world, many communities, is a problem. Well, look, we didn't have a plan, you could tell, because the only way we could raise money was to ask our guests at, at your wedding. wedding, who were largely, let's be clear, medical students and public health students. Last time I checked, neither of which are the most wealthiest people on the planet. But they were supportive. But they're very generous. Yeah. And and they we ended up raising $6,000 yeah. and enough to fund about 30 community health mm -hmm. workers for one year in one community. But today, Last Mile Health is working with several governments across oh. Africa, mm -hmm. both during the Ebola, history's mm -hmm. worst Ebola outbreak in Liberia, but then during the COVID pandemic across Africa to hire, train, and equip mm -hmm. thousands of health workers, mm -hmm. like community health workers, uh, to serve millions of people who otherwise would be out of reach of the care they right. need. And so I feel very proud about the work mm -hmm. my colleagues there continue to do yeah. and, you know, um, grateful for the the many who stand with Last Mile Health to keep doing that work, including our, our partner countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Raj, as you know, we ask our guests to bring a memento, something that represents a meaningful moment in their career. Could you please describe to us what you brought here today and what it represents to you? Well, I brought a steth my stethoscope and what it represents to me is how important it is to listen mm to those on the front lines of any problem. I've worked in public health all of my career. I 
also have worked in national security. I just recently uh, completed my service at the White House National Security Council and uh, working as the special assistant to President Biden and senior director on the National Security Council focused on the mission of protecting America and the world from pandemic and biological threats during COVID and a number of other epidemics. And so sitting in that building in a classified office so many hours Mm -hmm. uh, of every week, I think got me reflecting on how effective policy is made. And for me, I've seen that those who are able to be most proximal Mm -hmm. to those who may be impacted by our policies ended up being the most effective decision makers. Mm-hmm. In medicine and public health, for me, that practice has been seeing patients. It was why I felt so confident mm-hmm. as a then 25-year-old working with the Ministry of Health to launch a HIV treatment clinic because I was seeing patients with tuberculosis with the stethoscope mm-hmm. uh, and listening to their lungs mm-hmm. dying. It was you know during the beginning of the COVID pandemic in the United States, uh, although we were supporting work in Africa, I put my hand up as so many of my colleagues did to volunteer Mm. to work in testing clinics Mm -hmm. in Boston and then work in vaccination rollout sites, even, uh, you know, as part of the president's and the White House's and the government's work to roll out hundreds of millions of vaccines Mm. in this country. So to me, that has been, you know, the most symbolic of how proximity in policymaking uh, involves listening because you put on your stethoscope around your ears Mm -hmm. and then you put the other end of it on a patient's chest and how humbling that can be because often if you're investing in the people closest to the Mm -hmm. problem you're often seeing your policies not work as effectively Mm -hmm. as you think they might be and that's sometimes often the challenge right there are policy being made at a high level right and maybe those folks not having that experience or understanding of what happens on the ground and i think about your your story and the importance of having someone like you who was the special assistant to President Biden, but is also the person that founded Last Mile Health and also the person that worked in communities in rural Alaska and how that's so powerful in the policies that you end up creating. I think it's been, those are experiences I keep coming back to, uh, uh, you know, as far back as seeing, you know, when I was 24 and first gotten back to Liberia, I was caring for a seven day old newborn girl with my stethoscope. Mm. This same one? Uh, not the same one, one, but, but yeah. uh, uh, it would be uh, infection prevention and control malpractice if I had kept it <laughs> all those years. <laughs> but very much like this one. And she was the first patient that I cared for that was extremely sick. Her mother had given birth to her in a community eight hours from the clinic in mm-hmm. northern Liberia. And she had noticed her child was sick because it wasn't her first child and her child was having difficulty latching mm-hmm. onto her nipple and her breast to, to mm-hmm. breastfeed. and But she was stuck because she was in a forest community that uh, required her to walk, again, eight hours mm-hmm. to the nearest clinic because that's where the nearest health worker was. And I happened to be part of that team of health workers when she eventually was able to get, after all those hours of walking, her daughter to the care that she needed. And I remember holding this little girl in the one-room emergency room putting my stethoscope on her lungs. And the only way I can describe it, because it's hard to describe the sounds of lungs being eaten up by bacteria. She had a pneumonia, it was clear, is is imagine the sound of choking car engines. Hmm. So we knew what was wrong. We had antibiotics. What we were missing was oxygen. Hmm. The only place an oxygen tank existed was in the neighboring building. And it was the only oxygen tank in the entire 
county or state, mm -hmm. you could call it, medical oxygen. And that oxygen tank was reserved for what? For bringing, for, for providing oxygen to mothers who needed to undergo a C-section mm -hmm. to bring babies into the world. Mm -hmm. So we negotiated with the operating room staff if we could pick up the tank mm -hmm. and bring it to the pediatric ward to put oxygen mm -hmm. on this little girl. After some back and forth, they allowed us. So four or five of us picked the tank up and brought it over and put this little girl in oxygen. You can immediately see her. You know, some of us, so many of us have either lived through it, now seen a relative, mm -hmm. or have seen the images during COVID mm -hmm. of suffocating mm -hmm. when you have a viral infection and how devastating that mm -hmm. is. Imagine a seven-day-old mm -hmm. who was then alleviated from her distress. Mm -hmm. But by 2 a.m. that night, a mother did have to come in. Mm -hmm did need a C-section. That oxygen tank was needed for her. Mm -hmm. And so that tank was pulled from seven-day-old to be given mm -hmm. to the mother who was bringing a newborn in. And she ended up delivering a healthy baby girl, mm -hmm. but the one we were caring for died. Oh. So for me, this stethoscope, and anyone that wears one or has other tools that bring them close to the people we're trying mm -hmm. to serve, but also remind us how far mm -hmm. we are from the stated policy goals of health equity, of health security. Mm. What does that mean? Keeping all people safe from the diseases yeah. uh, that, that impact our lives, that shorten yeah. our lives. Yeah. We're far from that. And mm -hmm. I think that, but we've made significant progress as well. And I think that to me is why the stethoscope uh, was the momentum that you um, yeah. asked me. <laughs> the, thank you for sharing this powerful story. It reminds me of this quote that I've seen you use before, illness is universal, but access to care is not and, and should not be. Um, yeah, illness is universal and healthcare isn't, and it's still true. Yeah, We've made a lot of progress and we continue to make progress, but uh, COVID pandemic, you know, set back so much progress. And um, I'm very proud of the work that uh, we've done with partners around the world. You were uh, the top pandemic official. Right. I was a top pending yeah. official uh, for the president of the yeah. National Security Council. Yeah. Uh, and so that I came on to the role after serving as the president's malaria coordinator, mm. leading the U.S. president's malaria mm. initiative, which was dealing with the world's oldest pandemic. Mm. Malaria is the world's oldest Old, pandemic. Yeah. Um, and I had grown up having in a malaria country that yourself, has oh malaria yeah as as with malaria several times as a kid mm. like many kids do in Liberia but then also had seen mm. the power of investing not just in the products the new vaccines yeah. the tests the treatments we were rolling out the world's mm. first malaria vaccine mm -hmm. when i was the head of the president's malaria initiative in support of yeah. the world health organization and countries in largely in sub-saharan africa but also the power of investing in people. The community networks that you talked about. Yeah, the local well, right? community health workers. Yeah. And, one of, uh, and, and that became essential mm -hmm. to help us fight COVID. Rush, clearly because of everything you've done, you've received so many accolades um, over the years. I'm not going to list all of them, but just to mention a couple here for our uh, audience and listeners, you're on the Time 100 list of most influential people in the world and twice uh, one of the world's 50 greatest leaders by fortune. How does it feel to uh, receive all of these accolades? Well, no accolade I've ever received is anything but a product of two things. One is the importance of the issue uh -huh. of the day and the importance of the people that I've mm. been lucky to be surrounded mm. with 
who are doing work to address that issue. Yeah. Uh, so for me, you know, I, I lived this as a kid. Uh, we can have a myth that people are self-made, but they're really not. Mm. Uh, people aren't self-made. They're shaped mm. by others. So I think with every one of these, yeah. what recognitions, what we've tried to do is to whatever organization I've been a part of, try to take that as a recognition of the challenge to be humble yeah. that, in fact, often that challenge requires a lot more work. Uh, look at the state of health and equity yeah. in the world. Um, and that actually also there are a lot of people on the front lines who deserve support mm -hmm. to get that work done. Uh, you know, one good example uh, is, is just around the, um, the time 100 mm -hmm. recognition in 2016. Yeah, it really was, it could have been given to so many other people, but one of the reasons I think we were, we being, we in Last Mile Health were acknowledged is because like Last Mile Health and many others were focusing on these local health workers mm -hmm. who were critical to keeping not just Liberia mm -hmm. safe, but the rest of the world mm -hmm. safe. I and mean, we were told in the middle of that crisis that a million people could become infected in just Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, that more than half of them would die if nothing more was done. Terrifying. I mean, yeah. those three countries, all of us had gone through civil war before. We were still terrified. And this is in 2014. And you'll remember President Obama and Vice President Biden at the time had mobilized the world to bring in more support, mm -hmm. which we all appreciated. But it was still terrifying. And I remember standing with local health workers on the front lines mm -hmm. in a little structure, a home in, in there's a little church, actually, in the middle of the rainforest where a woman had just died from Ebola and about 13 people who attended her funeral had become infected in the subsequent weeks. And the midwives and the nurses and the community health workers who were learning to put on the gloves, mm -hmm. gowns, and masks to both care for patients who may have Ebola and other conditions and keep themselves safe while serving. And I remember seeing the fear in their eyes because at that time, for that strain of Ebola, we didn't have an approved mm -hmm. vaccine. So that meant you could become one of the infected mm -hmm. victims. And that wasn't a theory. Nearly 10%, one out of 10 local health workers in the Ebola epidemic, the war, history's worst Ebola outbreak in West Africa a decade ago, died from Ebola. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine how mm -hmm. fearful these workers were. But I also saw that they were willing to answer the call to serve their mm -hmm. neighbors. Mm -hmm. They worked, nurses and others, to hire, train, and equip mm -hmm. thousands, end up being, they think, about 10,000 mm -hmm. people around the country to learn the symptoms and signs of Ebola, even if you weren't medically trained, to go door-to-door -to, -door to find the sick mm -hmm. and get them into care. And within months, brought the Ebola outbreak under control and ended it by, frankly, risking their own lives, not only to keep their own people safe, to keep the rest of us safe. So when a media organization like Time, uh, and I've been fortunate to stay in touch with them, acknowledges, mm -hmm. as they did that year, their person of the year were actually people of the year, mm -hmm. and they were the local health workers. Yeah. You can't help but feel hopeful that the narrative of change actually is about local people yeah. doing work in their own communities. And so, so, so to me, that's what we've always tried to do when, when there's any recognition is to, is to focus it. And service, you mentioned, is a, is, a, is a big part of what you've done in your career. And 
I imagine that your story, again, and your family's story of, like we said earlier, of hardship and struggle, but resilience is also part of this, I saw you mention that once, this fire that you had in your soul, right, to pursue this, this line of work, um, service to, to communities um, and make, make the world a, a better place. So Raj, uh, we like to ask our guests uh, three questions every episode of Driving Impact. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What are three words you would use to describe your career? The three words for me, one is courage. The second is humility. Mm. And the third is discipline. And I struggle with all three equally mm. trying to strive for those in my leadership. What does it mean in your opinion to be American? You know, our president, President Biden, has a beautiful way to describe it, mm. and it's one that I've, I've found resonates with me, possibility. Mm. You know, I came here, my parents went from losing their house in the Civil War to then seeing their son serve in the White House. And Does it feel surreal at any oh, point? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it still does, yeah. right? Yeah. I, every day yeah. I walked into that building, I pinched yeah. myself on the way out. I pinched myself. <laughs> I also had a very stern picture of General Washington overlooking me, a painting of him my whole uh, time I was there. So it actually got me to reflect a bit mm. on why is it that we can describe this country and what it means to be an American with the word possibility. possibility yeah. And I think it's partly because the people who founded this country, who fought for the freedoms here, like General Washington, the ones who fought for the freedoms like Gandhi, mm -hmm that helped India become the world's largest now democracy. The possibility of a country in Liberia, in mm -hmm. West Africa, that could become a place where people of color, black people particularly, at a time when slavery hadn't been abolished in this mm -hmm. country, the pursuit, Liberia's symbol, uh, its, it's uh, state symbol says, the pursuit of, the love of liberty brought us mm -hmm. here. I think that idea of pursuing freedom is what is beautiful about this country. But what's even perhaps more special, speaking as someone who was born an Indian citizen in a country where I could never become one mm. because of the color of my skin. Mm. I couldn't become a Liberian citizen because you had to be one-twelfth black African descent to be a citizen. To be given the chance in 2011 to become a naturalized citizen mm. is something I can never forget, like mm. so many. As I stood there at the JFK Center in Massachusetts, and it was on the 50th anniversary of JFK's election, hearing the recorded video of President Obama, I was moved to tears because mm -hmm. I realized that possibility is yours for any dream you want to pursue in this country if all you do is agree to the ideas that made this country. And I had never experienced that in my entire life. That All you had to do was believe in what makes this country mm -hmm what it is, yeah. freedom, liberty, equality, equal opportunity, and that you're willing to be part of the struggle to pursue those things, and you get to be American. Mm -hmm. Incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of a quote, I don't remember the quote exactly, uh, by James Baldwin. He says something along the lines that, because I love my country so much, I criticize, I criticize because I want it to be better, right? You want to make uh, the U.S. a better place. Um, Raj, what is giving you hope right now? You know, the, um, to me, the, the idea that sometimes we can't choose the conditions we face, mm. 
but we can always choose how we respond to them. It's something that's, as I mentioned earlier from my dad's reciting of that Mm -hmm. West African novel, No Condition is Permanent, Mm -hmm. has been a through line for me. Mm -hmm. It's still something that gives me hope because I think that that's what it means to be human, Mm -hmm. is to to look in the face of some of the most Mm -hmm. difficult conditions. And our country, the United States, is facing a lot. Our world is facing a lot. But we can still choose how we respond to those conditions. Mm-hmm. And that, that gives me uh, still a tremendous amount of hope, mm-hmm. um, even in some of the darkest moments. Mm-hmm. Your story, Raj, is such a, an incredible testament to the fact that diversity of thought, diversity of lived experiences and lived experiences as expertise, diversity of backgrounds makes our country better. makes the policies, the national security policies, better, more effective, right? Having that understanding uh, of the communities. It's been such an honor to hear your story. Uh, It's a powerful story, humbling story, a story of resilience. So thank you for taking the time to share that with us. Oh, thank you, Hadil. And thank you and the team here for for doing this series. I think it's for all the reasons you just said, so important. Thank you. And we'll be watching for what you're uh, going to be doing next. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining our conversation with the Honorable Dr. Raj Punjabi on his lifelong dedication to service and expanding healthcare access around the globe. Do you want to hear more exclusive stories from policy leaders? Be sure to follow Driving Impact on YouTube, Spotify, or CSIS.org.